You're listening to audio from Redwood Baptist Church. If you need any more information about us, go to weareredwood.org. We hope that the message that you're about to hear will strengthen you, encourage you, and make you more like Jesus. Blessings. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for a wonderful heart that you all have and a spirit this morning uh, to worship the Lord. And uh, I, I'm already looking forward to the next time we take the Lord's uh, table. It's going to be the Sunday of leading into Thanksgiving week, and I'm going to be preaching an entire message uh, prior to uh, partaking of the Lord's table. And it's going to answer that question that maybe someone might have, and it's the question of you know, why, why make a big deal about death? Why, why actually celebrate? And that's really what, that's really what it is, is celebrate kind of the death of, uh, of Christ. And, and, and why is that? And my prayer is that uh, the Lord will use that unique message in preparation for heading into the week of Thanksgiving. We'll have a special evening service on that night. We're going to call it a night of worship. And we did that last year. We've actually done that the last couple years, and it's going to be a great time uh, that Sunday evening leading into uh, the week of Thanksgiving. Well, I want you to take your Bibles. Normally when I get up here all these months, it's been turn to Mark. But I want to uh, start a just a, a two-week just mini-series, and I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter number 4, and I have entitled this two-week mini-series, Within Grasp, Within Grasp. And as you're turning to uh, Philippians 4, I want to I tell you about a time when I was in Pennsylvania. This, of course, is when I, is when I met Mike uh, in Pennsylvania, the Fairless Hills, Pennsylvania, and I was working with youth uh, out there. And one of our very first teen activities that we had uh, was a teen activity that we called Bigger and Better. And so we brought all the teenagers into the room, and uh, I think we had a time of food. Maybe it was a time of food after, it doesn't matter. But we gave every single one of the teenagers, uh, we, we put them in groups, and then we gave them all a paper clip. And with that paper clip, they had to, we gave them, we sent them in different directions outside of the church into the neighborhoods around the church uh, to go in different directions. And they had to start with that paper clip and they had to go up and they had to knock on a total stranger's door and they had to say, hi, you know, we are, uh, you know, the youth department from Faith Baptist Church, you know, just kind of down the street there. And we're playing this game called Bigger and Better. And so we're starting with a paper clip and if you have anything in your house that you wouldn't mind trading, it's got to be something that's bigger than this or better than this. And so then they would trade. They'd give you something. Who knows what they give you? Maybe they give you a pen and it's a little bit bigger. And then you go to the next house and you can say, hey, we're on this like scavenger hunt of a game uh, called Bigger and Better. And they just went on. And then they were supposed to be back at the church like 30, 40 minutes later. And then as the groups came back, Mike's group brought in this nasty old set of like golf clubs or something like that that was in uh, someone's uh, garage. But the team, that, the team that won, they brought a big, huge, just like a, uh, a big old furniture set, like a big dresser. Someone wanted to just get rid of some junk, and they saw an opportunity or some crazy kids, and they brought back this big old, uh, just massive like chest of drawers kind of stuff, and we ended up selling that at a junk auction, you know what I'm saying? And so it went from one junk to, you know, to someone else's junk. But it was just, it was neat. It was a fun game. The kids loved it. We had pizza, and then we talked about how, you know, sometimes in our pursuit of life, we are 
dangerously on a pursuit of bigger and better. And so this morning I've titled the message, Fighting the Bigger and Better Mentality. How do you and I, how do we fight that? And if I could be honest, as I always desire to be, I wish I could sit down with you all one-on-one or family-to-family and have this talk. I really wish I could. But the setting is, of course, it's going to be in a church setting, but, but I wish I could sit right down next to you and close to you and, and for us just to kind of, kind of have a dialogue with this idea of the bigger and better mentality. Let me start off by asking you a question. Why do we all seem to want more? Why is it so hard for us to accept less? Why do we get haunted by this bigger and better concept? Why is it so difficult in 2019, in the midst of the American dream, to be satisfied? To be content? Maybe it's a better job or it's a more succulent steak. Maybe it's a nicer boss or a prettier girlfriend or cuter boyfriend. Maybe it's a nicer car or a more luxurious condo. Maybe it's a better vacation than last year. Or maybe it's something just as simple as trying to find a better cup of coffee than you had yesterday. But the spiritual energies of your life can be consumed by working your way up to something that's bigger and something that's better. And so what do I mean when I say kind of working your, working your way up? Well, I mean in all reality, if we're not careful, you and I, we can be living in a state of constant discontent. Yes, you and I, we're thankful for the joys of the moment, but you and I, we do not have our head down in prayerful thanks that often. No, our heads are up and our eyes are constantly scanning for the next big thing, the next better thing, the next more satisfying thing for our life. It is the pursuit that we're off and on. And so let me, I want you to, I want to go slow through this. I want you to see it. I want you to hear it. It'll be up on the screen. When you are discontent, you are always in some way working your way up the ladder of personally satisfying delights. I'm not saying that you're always doing that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not accusing you of that. But what I'm saying is, again, I, I wish I could just have a talk with you. I wish we could just kind of sit down just across from the table when we are discontent. And I'm not saying that we're always discontent because there's seasons of contentment in my life. But there's absolutely seasons of discontentment. And when I'm discontent, what we're really saying is, is that we're, 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 in some way, we're always working our way up the ladder of personal satisfying delights. Next statement. You are not really thankful for or committed to when you have been given what you have been given because in your heart you think that there must be something better out there and so you are on the hunt. Teenagers, hey, you're going to start with a paperclip. Don't come back with anything that's less than bigger. Don't come back with anything that's less than better. And so there's this, there's this forever pursuit. And so let me ask you again. I, I know I've already asked you a few questions, but let me ask you a serious, just kind of a, 
kind of like a heart gut punch question. How fragile is your contentment? I want you to ponder that. How, how fragile is your contentment? How much of your life or how little would have to change for you to plunge into frustrated, joyless discontent? Sadly for many of us, it wouldn't take much. Too often in this world, our contentment is based on things going according to our plans, our life working out the way we've concocted that it should work out. We're, you know, we're always a year, two years, three years in advance. We're never so much content with where we're at right now. And I mean, listen, I wish I could look in the mirror and talk to myself right now too. And so, so often it's hinging on those things. But for Christians... Christians can and should have a different perspective. Rather than being content in uh, success of our plans, we need to find contentment in God's sovereign and providential control. You and I, we need to remember that even when things do not go our way, God is still on His throne and He's orchestrating the events of life for His glory and hear me, for your good. And so I want to read our entire text It'll be up on the screen. We're going to spend two weeks in it just kind of breaking it down. But we see in Philippians 4, verse number 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful. In other words, there were times when you cared, absolutely. But ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. And then the famous verse that's so often ripped out of the context. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the Gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. Got to remember, Paul was, a, Paul was a missionary kind of church planter. And so what he's saying on the, 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 the embarking of, of the Gospel to the Gentiles, that's kind of what he's meaning there. The beginning of the Gospels to the Gentiles, no one communicated with him. In other words, no one helped him out, so to speak. No one gave to him. No one gave his necessities, but the church here at um, Philippi. Verse 16. For even in Thessalonica he sent once and again unto my necessities. In other words, when he was planning a church in Thessalonica, they sent um, money to him. Verse number 19. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But that I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So we're going to spend the next two weeks kind of diving into this text. The idea of contentment, it literally is within your grasp, but so often it seems like we're just you know, grabbing at air. And so contentment, when you, when, when you take the idea of contentment, it's really elusive in this fallen world. People move through life full of regret of the past, anxiety about the future, and dissatisfaction with the present in their life. Frankly, I'll be honest with you, that's very understandable. 
And the reason why is because life rarely plays out in alignment with our desires. Rarely does it line up with our plans. And so, as one uh, philosopher in the 60s put it, you can't always get what you want. And there's the truth to that. You're not going to get everything that you plan. Yet being unsatisfied with our past or present circumstances is only part of what causes the common lack in contentment. Pessimism about the future always plays a need, needed role in our restless discontentment. Seemingly endless wars, right? In our society. Uh, spiraling debt that we're learning about every single month. Crazy elections and moral anarchy. All kind of conspire and they kind of they, they, they kind of trap us in this in this mode of anxiety, this mode of uh, of discontent, and and they kind of take away all of the hope for the future. But you take it a little bit closer, to bring it closer to home, not just on the you know the, the the global or the country front. Family dysfunction, sickness, aging, and financial concerns constantly threaten to undermine any remaining contentedness in our household. And on top of all of that, an unbelieving world, they, they search for contentment in places that it can never be found. They search for contentment with power, with wealth, with prestige and temporal pleasure all holding to some strong allure that if they can only just grasp it, if they can just get a hold of those things, they will find what is needed to have the joy and contentment in life. And all those things just end up becoming the source of more dissatisfaction rather than the solution because those things are fading and they're constantly outside of your grasp. And so the only true contentment comes from living life, hear me, living life in reconciled harmony and worship with the sovereign and unchanging God of the universe. Living in harmony with Him and in worship of the unchanging, sovereign God of the universe. And that's why the Apostle Paul instructed the church here at Philippi in verse number 6 of chapter 4. It says, be careful for nothing or be anxious for nothing. Worry about nothing. Those of you that have been in our 10 o'clock series, you can kind of see this was birthed kind of out of that. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts in your minds through Christ Jesus. And so when you and I are in harmony with Him, we are worshiping, we are reconciled with the God of the universe, you and I, we can, we can rest. The pursuit can be over. In the same chapter, Paul goes on to say in verse number 11, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Listen, that is not to say that Paul had found a state of being that was free from suffering. It wasn't free from disasters. It wasn't free from opposition. Rather, what Paul was able to do is he was able to embrace all of his hardships as essential components of God's sovereign plan in his life. The contentment he describes transcends the fact that he is in a prison transcends the fact that he is in a nasty place, literally chained to uh, another officer. He, it transcends that. It, it, it comes above what his current situations are and saying, hey, I've learned no matter where I'm at, the ups and the downs, he talks about that here in the text, 
We'll look more at that next week. Ups and the downs, no matter what, I've learned to be content. His union with Christ brought with it this profound sense of satisfaction. It brought about this independence from what the world could necessarily provide. It wasn't connected to that. It wasn't connected to the prestige. It wasn't connected to the wealth. It wasn't connected to the power and the popularity and the things that the world pumps into us to say this is where real life uh, is found. And so Paul was able to say that his sufficiency was found in Christ. Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. John MacArthur in his commentary in Philippians put it this way, Paul was saying, I have learned to be sufficient in myself. Yet not in myself as myself, but as indwelt by Christ. So Paul was saying, hey, here, I can do all things. Why? Because of Christ who strengthened me. Paul put it a different way when he was writing to the churches there at Galatia. In Galatians 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And so when we, when we begin this journey, we've got to start with this. Christ and contentment go together. Christ and contentment go together. But Paul's view was at odds with the Greek philosophers of his day. The Greek philosophers, the, the Stoics, they, they held that, 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 um, that, that all reality is material. And they, and they stress that putting aside passion, putting aside extravagance to perform one's duty is the way to gain true freedom. They believed, the Stoics taught, that, they, that, that contentment was achieved only when one came to the point of total indifference. They taught, hey, if you'll just go through life and just be like, eh, whatever, who cares? Then you will be content. And that's kind of the, the, that's what the Greek philosophers of that day, that's what they would have been pumping. But the contentment that Paul described was never detached from his passions. It was never detached from what he found his ultimate passion in being Jesus Christ. It was not being disconnected from all the things that made Paul content. It was his contentedness or his connectedness, excuse me, to Christ that was all satisfying. It was what was all-consuming. His letters to the churches that he planted, they're overflowing with love for Christ. You can read uh, Ephesians and Colossians, and it's just they're filled with this over-love that he has for Christ. And when you read Philippians, literally you know what Philippians is? It's like a big, huge thank-you note. Just a big, huge, hey, thank you, I love you, I love Christ, I, I-, I love what he's doing in your life and what he's doing in my life. And so Paul concluded to the church here at Philippi was really a heartfelt gratitude. And behind that gratitude was a contentment that was found in the midst of extreme hardships. Prison, as I mentioned, had been whipped and all, all sorts of things. And he expressed that contentment and, he de- and designed uh, and that he provided that, that was provided by God 
because he wanted the Philippians to know how to experience it as well. And so, in the book of Philippians, when you read verses 10 through 19, he's, he, he thanked the Philippians for their gift to them. And he indirectly was offering himself as an example of what contentment looks like. And so true contentment can never be known, hear what I'm about to say, by those that do not know God. True contentment cannot be known apart from Christ. Unbelievers, they're, they're doomed to live their lives with a sense of helplessness, surrounded by anarchy. Desires for true peace, safety, and lasting prosperity, they're unattainable. Hear me. Particularly for those who subscribe to an atheistic way of living. Or those that subscribe to a, you know, just a happenstance, evolutionary way of belief systems. Those worldviews, they, they teach us that events are random. Those worldviews, they, they teach us that, uh, that, that, that our origins are simply accidental. That our lives are meaningless and we are just a, it's just, tragedy is inevitable. It's going to happen. The, you know, the, uh, the, the, the big eat the little and so on and so forth. And those who close their eyes to the one true God, they remain blind to His divine plans and purposes. So contentment can only be found through trusting in God's providence. Until we truly learn that God is sovereign, we cannot help but be discontent. Can I give you a, like a word picture for this? until we take ourselves off of the throne of our life, we will never be content. Because if we are on the throne of our life, if we know what is best, if our plans are what will bring about this contentment, will bring about this joy, and we want to kind of... None of us would sign up to dethrone God. I'm not... Listen, but we do it by elevating our wishes, by elevating our plans, by elevating our wisdom, by elevating our sovereignty. In nature, what we do is we then dethrone God, and then what happens? Your life goes perfectly, right? Oh, oh, your, your, your guys' life's not like just humming along perfectly? Mine is not either. And so listen, when it's all up to us and it doesn't go as planned, all of us would admit, yeah, no, it didn't go exactly as planned, then we live in a state of discontentment. But if you and I will dethrone ourselves and we will elevate a sovereign God, then you and I can begin to submit to that plan that comes with God being an on the throne of our hearts. So Christ and contentment, they go together. I can do all things placed right in this passage of contentment and struggle and difficulty. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Contentment is not going to be found out there. Contentment is not going to be found in our team winning. Our contentment is not going to be found in uh, that new car. Our contentment is not going to be found in that person our contentment is going to start and end 
in Christ. He is enough for us. Second point, God's providence and contentment go together. Christ and contentment go together, and God's providence and contentment, they go together. Let me kind of show you what this means by contrast. There are, there are two ways that God, that He acts in our world. God acts by miracle, and He acts by providence. A miracle is something that you and I, we can't, we can't naturally, that there's no natural explanation. In the flow of normal life, God suddenly kind of stems the tide, so to speak. He interjects Himself, and boom, there's this amazing miracle, and then normal life continues to go on. Take the, uh, take the children of Israel as they're being chased by Pharaoh and all of his armies, right? They come down. You've got the, 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 sea of, uh, the, the, the Red Sea there. Normally, that Red Sea stays there, and if you were to try to walk on the Red Sea, what are you going to do? You're going to sink, and you're going to die, and you're going to drown, right? But so a miracle takes place. Pharaoh and all of his armies are coming after the children of Israel. Moses is leading them out. They come to the brink of the Red Sea. They're terrified. And what does God do? God parts the Red Sea. It's amazing. They walk on dry ground, the Bible says. They cross, and so God stems the natural course of life. Literally, that doesn't happen every day, right? And the Children of Israel walk through. As soon as the Pharaoh and his armies get in there, boom, right back to normal. They come crashing in. That's what you and I would call a miracle. Now let me ask you a question. I've asked you this before, but I want to ask it to you in a different way. Do you think it's easier, kind of in your mind, to say, hey, all right, I want to do a miracle and do it like God could, or to say, I've got 50 billion circumstances to orchestrate to accomplish one thing. That is providence. Think for an example of how God providentially ordered the lives of Joseph. Of Ruth. Of Esther. These are great women in the Bible. Awesome stories. Think of it. Did each of those people have some seriously scary stuff happen to them? Yeah. Yet in the end, God was orchestrating it all for his good. Do you remember what Joseph said at the end of Genesis, Genesis 50? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass that as is this day to save much people alive. You know the story, right, of Genesis? Joseph had his coat of many colors. His brothers hated him for that. He was his daddy's favorite. And so what they do? They want to kill him. And some of the brothers are like, oh, no, we, 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 we can't kill our brothers. So instead, they throw him in a pit and leave him for dead. And some animal's going to come devour him, right? And that's what they do. Evil. You thought evil against me. That's what Joseph's saying. You, you, you wanted something really bad to happen to me. And what happened instead was, as I came and I got bought or I, I got sold into slavery, and so now I'm in this slave's house and God blesses me and I, and I move up in the, sla- in, in, in the house, in, in Potiphar's house, and now it's, like, it's, it's amazing. And so now the wife lies about me and I get thrown in prison. And when I'm in prison, I get lied about. And then the Pharaoh has dreams and I'm able to interpret those dreams through God's power. And now he's second in command in Egypt and he's able to spare much people alive. The seven years of famine and the seven years of plenty because God gave him the understanding of the Pharaoh's dream. 
And all of those details, all of those years and years and years, the languishing in prison, the being lied about, well, God, you, that's what we do. And yet Joseph, God, I understand. And he gets elevated. Today, God does the same thing with you. The Apostle Paul learned the secret of contentment through the understanding and the embracing of God's providence. It's found in Christ and then understanding that God is providential. God is working these things out. It says in Philippians 4, verse 11, not that I speak in respect of one. We okay? I mean, I wish I could sit across from you and just have a talk. Here's what Paul says. I've learned in what service state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be a base and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. When Paul spoke about learning to be content, regardless of his circumstances, he was informing the Philippians that he knew God was providentially at work. By the way, that was regardless of whether they could send him financial support or not. It it, it didn't connect with that. See, the Philippian church, they had been a major donor, a major supporter of Paul's missionary journeys. And when he went to start the church there at Philippi, that was some 10 years earlier. And now he's writing this church to, uh, writing this letter to the church at Philippi. If you want to read about when this church was started, you can study the book of Acts and look in chapter number 16. What happened was this Paul, they, they, they were traveling through and they meet this businesswoman. Her name was Lydia. She was the seller of purple. And because of this, and, and, and she is just the amazing story of redemption, the church of Philippi begins. And as they're there in Philippi, they're doing all kinds of amazing things. There's this woman that's got uh, the gift of you know divination. She's able to see the future and all different kinds of stuff. She was demonically charged and with power and so paul rebukes the demon that's inside of her she no longer has that ability and the owner of that woman gets upset goes to the leaders of the city and says hey they're he, paul they, they, these guys are affecting our they're affecting our well-being and so what do they do to paul they beat him they whip him they throw him in prison and they chain him to a guard And then at midnight, what does he and Silas do? Anybody remember? They start singing and praying. You know what I do at midnight when I'm in the prison changing another guard? I complain. Paul and Silas, you know what they're doing? They start singing praises at midnight. And God miraculously begins to shake the very foundations of that prison. The prison cell doors open. They're literally, all the prisoners are unshackled, right? And then the guard of the prison comes. He's getting ready to fall on a sword. He's getting ready to kill himself. And all of the prisoners are there. And the prisoner trusts Christ as a Savior. His whole household gets saved. Listen, this is how the church at Philippi was birthed. And this church ministered to Paul through financial support over all of these years. And God responds in this amazing way. But as the church grew, it apparently they, they couldn't always help Him. We see in verse number 10, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. So, it, the, 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 as, Philipp, the Philipp, as it indicates, there was a 
subsequent period when the church of Philippi lacked the opportunity to, to send aid. Maybe it's because of deep poverty, we don't know, but their financial support, it dried up. It had been available, it had not been available uh, for, 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 for some time. But listen, Paul was okay with that. Paul understood, hey, hey, this is, this is a season. This is, this is providential. God is allowing this. At the very beginning, there was great support, but then there was a period of time, we don't know how long, but there was about 10 years between Acts 16 and the time when he's writing this, church to this letter to the church of Philippi, and now it's begun again. This giving has started up again. All he was saying was, hey, you, all, you lacked opportunity. That is a reference to a season or a window not to chronological time. What he's saying was, hey, there's a, there's a period here where you could not meet our needs. And so he's saying, not that at your last care of me had flourished again. Paul was using an agricultural term that means to bloom again. It's like Paul was saying, your love has flowered again. I know that it's always been there, but it just did not have an opportunity to bloom. Blooms are seasonal, and the right season had not come along until now. The point is that Paul had a patient confidence in God's sovereign plan. He was content to do without and wait on the Lord's timing. He did not resort to panic. He did not resort to manipulation. He did not resort to, you know, trying to just, hey, hey, tell everybody my problems, and so maybe somebody will help. Instead, there was just a patience. There was a confidence. Hey, you were able to help me at the beginning, and there was a season when you couldn't, and there's now you're doing it again. And he says a big thank you letter. Thank you for your gifts unto my ministry. Paul saw God's fingerprint everywhere. And he was not swayed by the changes of life. He saw God's providential purposes in every situation, no matter how adverse they were. Paul was able to say at the beginning of this book in Philippians 1, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the Gospel. Paul is saying, the difficulties that I've had, it's for the furtherance of the Gospel. He's in prison, by the way, while he's writing this letter to the church at Philippi. Suffering was an opportunity for profound fellowship with Christ. Paul said in Philippians 3.10 that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. He wanted to know what it was like. <laughs> Even death represented the greatest potential gain. He said in Philippians 1, verse 23, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Far better. You see, in Paul's economy, there was nothing in the world that held a real value compared to Christ. Nothing wrong with things. If that's what you're hearing out of this, you're missing it. Nothing wrong with having nice things. Nothing wrong with having a more succulent steak. Amen? Right? We talked about the beginning, right? Nothing wrong with that. But Paul, what would he say? He understood that nothing held any real value compared to Christ. 
You want that steak to be more enjoyable? You want that car to be more enjoyable? You want that house to be more enjoyable? You want that relationship to be more enjoyable? You want all of the stuff that God in His grace lets us enjoy, amen? Be with Christ. In Christ. Be content with Christ. He says in Philippians 3, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. If you go earlier in that chapter, and the Apostle Paul says, I had it all. I had the prestige. I had the power. I was able to take any Christian I wanted and get them either killed or judged, whatever the case is. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Man, he said, here's what he said, but I count all of that. None of that matters to me. Because now his pursuit was Christ. His contentment was found in Christ. And for that reason, he was able to live through the sunshine and the storms of life with unshakable contentment. That does not mean that Paul took a passive, you know, hey, let's just, you know, like the Stoics said, ah, just be indifferent, you know, just let go and let God. No, 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 the Apostle Paul was, he was, he was very active. And so I want to conclude this morning with this. The first message of this mini-series, we're going to dive back into the text next week. What is the solution for fighting the ladder of bigger and better? What is it? This is what it comes down to. Identity and worship. Identity and worship. When you and I begin to humbly accept who we are as a sinner, when we honestly face the fact that our deepest problem in life exists inside of us and not outside of us. You wonder why we're so discontent? Because we're always pointing the finger. Well, you, 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 you. This reason, this reason. When you and I face the music, so to speak, that our greatest problem lives inside of us, when we begin to grasp the reality that God sent His Son to free us from our biggest problem, us, then you and I will quit working our way up. Why? Because you and I will be so filled with gratitude that the one thing that we desperately needed, God gives freely in His Son, Jesus Christ. It is the thing in life that I cannot do for myself, yet I cannot live without. And it is the grace that is, that is in Christ that has freed me from the bondage of me. Jesus has freed me from my addiction to having me at the center of my universe. Guys, Jesus has freed us from that. You and I, we do not have to be on the thrones of our hearts anymore because Jesus has freed us from that. Jesus has freed me from the ravenous and unsatisfiable appetite of sin so that I may begin to experience true personal satisfaction where it can only be found in worship of Him. He has broken the power of this addiction over me so that I can be increasingly free wherever I am. Wherever life has me living at that moment. The key 
to getting off the ladder, the key to stopping the teen activity, (laughs) bigger and better pursuit of something that is more, something that is more satisfying, is experiencing true contentment. It's not in having more. It is being content with what you already have in Christ. It is only when my heart is satisfied because of what I have been given in Christ that I will leave the hunt. And here's the oxymoron of it all. If you and I can actually grasp that, we can actually leave here this afternoon. You've listened so well today. Preached long, I know. That Jesus is enough. There's the oxymoron of that. Everything else is so much better. It's true. The stuff that so often we search for to make us happy and never does actually brings some enjoyment. Take ourselves off. Put Christ on and experience the amazing grace that's found in what true satisfaction looks like. Title of our mini-series, Within Grasp. Here's why it's within grasp. Because all it is is Jesus. Grasp Him. Get a hold of Him. And you will find that in the ups and downs, the losses and the gains of life, you and I can be a consistent, steady, contented Christian. May your heart be satisfied in the only place where satisfaction can be found. You want to know why I wanted to sit down across the table from you? Because you know what I would have told you? I'd have told you, hey, I'm going to pray for you. Will you pray for me? I desire this radical change in my life as well. We we, We have seasons of it, right? We're getting kind of ready to get into one of those seasons, Thanksgiving, where we're a little bit more others-oriented. But where this just becomes the testimony of Ryan's life, where we can just be real and raw and authentic across the table from us. But that's not how the Lord saw it fit. But contentment in Christ and His providence, they go together. It's not in stuff. But stuff becomes more enjoyable when we realize where the source of our contentment comes from. Next week, we'll continue through this journey and dive a little bit deeper. Heads bowed, eyes closed.